Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. Or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with durable colors that last all season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. I'm Alan Olga, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. The idea is that we get our sense of understanding from the people around us. Right? Understanding is like a virus which we can catch. So we might have a sense of understanding because the people around us have a sense of understanding, but they might only have a sense of understanding because the people around them think they have an understanding. And, and those people might have a sense of understanding only because the people around, you see where this is going, right? You can have an entire community that has a sense of understanding even though nobody actually understands. That's Steve Sloman, who, along with his colleague Phil Fernbach, has written a book called The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone. It's a book that certainly made me think. Well, this should be interesting because I found your book fascinating, The Knowledge Illusion. And what should be interesting about our conversation is that a a couple hours ago, I, I said to my wife, Arlene, I'm going to talk with these two interesting guys. And it should be fascinating because the subject is so interesting. She said, what is it? And I thought I understood it well enough to explain it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. So that sort of is your book right there. <laughs> so, so why don't you both have a go to helping me understand what the knowledge illusion really is. Okay, I'm, I'm older, so I'll go first. Um, so the knowledge illusion is the human tendency to think we understand things better than we do. And this is true not only of everyday objects, but it's also true of our understanding of other people, of political situations, of moral issues, of all kinds of things. And we believe that the cause of this phenomenon is that we tend to fail to distinguish what we know from what the people around us know, so that knowledge, the sense of understanding is contagious. If other people in our community understand it, then we think we do. So, Phil, does that mean that in the normal course of events, we rely on the rest of our community to do most of our knowing for us? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So anything um, that human beings do tends to be sufficiently complex that one person, one individual doesn't really know enough 
about that thing in order to have a position on it. And so we really have to rely on our communities to a great extent um, to have uh, beliefs and positions about the world. Um, and so we're constantly relying on our community uh, for knowledge um, on, on almost, almost any issue or almost anything that we deal with. One of the things that made this so interesting to me was the idea that if someone else understands a particular thing, someone else in our community, we tend to rate our own understanding of it higher than if we don't know that somebody else understands it. There was a study done where a made-up term was given to the subject. Can you run that through for me again so I know what I'm talking about here? Sure. So that's that's my research that I originally did with a guy named Nat Rapp, but I've done a variety of replications with a variety of other people since. And essentially what we do is we say, someone else understands something. Um, how well do you understand it? So we give very little information about the thing. We might say, um, there's this uh, rocks that that glow have been found, right? And then we say either researchers understand why they glow, or we tell them researchers don't understand why they glow. How well do you understand why they glow? And what we find is that when researchers do understand, people give a higher rating of understanding than when researchers don't understand. Now, this is under higher rating of their own understanding. Of their own understanding. Of a phenomenon that doesn't really exist. Yeah, so... Exactly. Yeah. And we've shown this with scientific phenomena that we've made up. We've also shown it with political policies that we've made up, sort of generic things that could be true, right? Yeah. They don't exist, and so people couldn't possibly understand them. <laughs> but, but they think they do. If they're told that other people understand it, they have a higher opinion of their own understanding. Now, how do you explain that? This is exactly the right phenomenon to be querying us about, because this really captures the essence of the book, right? So the idea is that we get our sense of understanding from the people around us, right? Understanding is like a virus, which we can catch. So we might have a sense of understanding because the people around us have a sense of understanding, but they might only have a sense of understanding because the people around them think they have an understanding. And, and those people might have a sense of understanding only because the people around them, you see where this is going, right? You can have an entire community that has a sense of understanding, even though nobody actually understands. You know, I've, got, I've got a great story to illustrate this. Um, so I attended the Flat Earth uh, conference in Denver a couple of years ago, which was a meeting of people who believe the earth is flat. How many people were at the meeting? Uh, a couple hundred. It was, uh, it was one of the most fascinating experiences of my career easily. Um, and, uh, there were small moments throughout the conference that illustrated exactly this phenomenon that Steve has studied, this contagious sense of understanding. Um, one that I recall was, um, one of the speakers was, uh, talking about eclipses. Eclipses are a big problem for the flat earth theory. Um, and he was uh, gesticulating and explaining um, exactly how uh, it was possible to have eclipses with a flat earth theory. And I looked around and I saw everyone nodding their heads. And I was mm. sitting there thinking, wow, can these people really imagine what eclipses look like from the surface of a flat versus a 
three-dimensional Earth? It seems like an incredibly difficult problem. And yet everybody's nodding their heads along and seems to know what's going on. Um, after the, the talk, I, I talked to some folks and I asked them, um, wow, that's pretty impressive. Do you guys really understand what he was saying? And um, I saw this sort of dawning realization um, that people realized, oh, wow, I actually have no clue what an eclipse <laughs> would look like from Earth under different <laughs> theories of the flat Earth. Um, and so um, I thought that that was such a perfect illustration. You know, that's what's going on. It's sort of a house of cards situation where everybody is getting their sense of understanding from those around them and everybody's nodding along with these ideas. Um, so that was sort of a real world demonstration of exactly what Steve has studied. It's actually a good a good example of my own dilemma sometimes because I think often people who don't accept what's accepted by science but have the verification that they rely on for what they believe from someone they trust who might be Antilly, who can be trusted on a lot of subjects but maybe not on whether the earth is flat or not or vaccines are helpful or not. But then what my dilemma is that sometimes I realize I'm making the choice about what I believe the same way they are. Absolutely. I think I'm relying on more reliable people, but how do I really know? Yeah, no, that's that's a critical question, and we're all in that dilemma, right? We have to rely on other people. I mean, we don't have to rely on other people to think that we ourselves understand it as individuals, right? We, we could have a touch of humility and say, oh, I know other people understand, but I don't. But in terms of asking the question, why should we believe science? I, I think you, you're absolutely right. Everybody's in the same position. We have to make a choice about who we're going to believe. And it's a matter of trust. And, you know, I have decided that uh, I believe in the process of science. You know, it's an, it's an adversarial process in which ideas are tested. The critical thing is that ideas can be wrong and often are. And for that reason, I've decided that's where I'm going to place my trust. But in some sense, you're right. I'm in exactly the same position as someone who buys into a conspiracy theory, um, as a QAnon or say, who is putting their trust in somebody else. I just think I'm more justified because I believe in the process. And the process includes something that makes me feel more justified, skepticism. And people are only able to speak with authority about what they think they know after they've run the gauntlet of a lot of skeptics challenging their idea. And hopefully, one of the biggest skeptics will be the scientist himself or herself. In an ideal so, world. Yeah. Science yeah. doesn't always work that way, unfortunately. No, no there, are, there are examples of ideas hanging on for centuries or long periods that were totally found to be wrong by later studies. The hope is, I guess, as you were saying, Steve, you you hope you're relying on the right person and you take every precaution to, to try to make that true. So, look, I, it's important to distinguish different kinds of things that we understand. So, like, it turns out most people don't understand how a ballpoint pen works, right? But they could probably figure it out themselves by well, opening it you're, up. You're scaring me. You mean I don't know how a ballpoint pen works? 
So let me ask you, do you think you understand how a ballpoint pen works? Well, I, it's funny. I remember I was when ballpoint pens first were introduced to the public, I was a boy. Mm-hmm. And they were supposed to be able to write underwater or write upside yeah. down in outer space. But the start of what I understand it to be is that there's a bunch of ink behind the ball. And when you write with it, the ball rolls and carries ink onto the paper. Is that yeah. close or money? Well, no, that, that's that's pretty good. So, well, how does the damn thing work? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> do, <laughs> do, yeah, do I look like a mechanical engineer? I no, it's 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 a tough problem. I mean, they are relatively complicated. There are questions about the viscosity of the ink. Right, the viscosity has to be just right so that you get the right of amount of ink flowing around the ball, and you know why are they the size they are? I mean, it's a, it's tough, and most people think they understand them better than they do, and that's true of lots of things. There are some things we can actually figure out on our own, and then there are many many more things where we depend on other people. And, you know, when we do, it is a matter of trust. And it's also, I think, a matter of of determining your trust by believing in the right set of principles. So often, you know, we appeal to people's values. And the values I appeal to are that someone believes in the empirical method. And as you said, is skeptical. Um, there are certain things we can understand ourselves. Um, and so we don't always have to be skeptical. Like if you consider um, how toilets work, most people, especially men, think they understand how toilets work better than in fact they do, which you can find out by asking someone to fix a broken toilet. Right? <laughs> um, but but it is the kind of thing that you could potentially figure out on your own, although not as easily as you could figure out, say, how a ballpoint pen works. But when you come to complex issues like any kind of social policy that matters, then figuring out what the implications of that is, right? What, how, what causes policies to be necessary and what effects do they have in the world? Well then we're all just sort of waving our hands to some degree, right? And working hard to try to figure out how policies would cause effects in the world. And so we have to depend on others. And I think that warrants a fair amount of skepticism because we're often wrong. So what does that mean for leadership? Does leadership mean that the person in charge thinks he or she knows and pushes for that? Or how do they get around the knowledge illusion? Well, I think one problem is that um, what people often look for in leaders is confidence. And confidence doesn't necessarily um, correlate with competence all the time. And so um, leaders are often incentivized to act as if they've got it all figured out. Um, A very different kind of leadership style that can be very effective is a more humble kind of leadership style where a leader realizes that um, something complex like a company or a governmental organization or whatever it is um, requires a dramatic amount of division of labor and expertise 
Um, and not no one person on a team is going to have all the answers. And in fact, a, a good leader is going to um, delegate and understand where the expertise lies within a group. Um, unfortunately, like I said, that's often not the way that these things work because everybody wants to look to their leader to act as if they've got it all figured out. Leaders have to walk a, a really fine line, though, right? Because they do have to display a certain amount of confidence. Like, think about the leader in a surgical team, right? Or the leader of a team that is um, engaged in battle. If you feel like your leader doesn't understand everything that's going on, you might lose trust, and that could be catastrophic. You know, you remind me of a, a personal experience when I was about 20 or 21 I was getting training in the Army, and it was leadership training. And we had a—there was a deep ravine. We had to cross the ravine, and all we had was a plank of wood and a piece of rope and something else, a rock or something. I don't know what it was. So the idea was to get across the ravine in, like, three minutes— so not wanting to waste any time and wanting to use all the knowledge that was available, we got into a huddle and I said, because I was the one who was supposed to be the leader at that point, I said, all right, does anybody know how to do this? I am, everybody frowned in the group and the teacher wrote me off because it's not leadership to ask anybody else how to do it. Oh, Wow. Interesting. That's really interesting. So you were actually in the real military. Well, the ROTC training. They tried twice to teach me to be an officer. It didn't take either time. <laughs> but the idea that you do want to consult anybody who might be more expert than you, but not look like you're stumbling and bumbling around. I've seen it often on a movie set. Somebody has to act like they know what's going on, even though it's somewhat chaotic sometimes. Yeah. Overconfidence is a real double-edged double -edged sword, I think. Um, there's certain situations where overconfidence is absolutely necessary. Um, for instance, entrepreneurship. Um, if you thought about everything that could possibly go wrong, no one would ever start a business. Um, and moreover... Um, Founders who act very confident actually deter other people from entering uh, a marketplace. Um, and so there's kind of a functional benefit of acting overconfident because mm. everyone says, oh, that guy's got it figured out or that gal's got it figured out. Um, I'm not going to even try to compete. Um, of course, overconfidence can also lead to really bad places because you're not prepared for what the most likely outcome is. So um, we, have a, we have a chapter in the book, actually the, the final chapter, where we, we talk about sort of the upsides and downsides of, uh, of, of having this illusion that you understand things better than you do. I mean, this is a very complicated domain. Like sometimes you have to pretend you don't understand things that you do understand in order to cover yourself. Right. So like what? A, a like a leader might bring in a consulting team huh. just so that they can say that, you know, they've they've done due diligence hmm. when, in fact, they know exactly what the answer, what what the consultant is going to suggest. What about a question I've often had? It seems to me that one of the worst kinds of ignorance and there are plenty of good kinds of ignorance, which are linked with curiosity but a very poor kind of ignorance that doesn't serve us well is one where you think that what you know is all that's known by anybody. 
Is that not paying attention to the good parts of the knowledge illusion? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, sometimes that's true, right? Like when you're talking about stuff that you only have access to in your private world, right? Like nobody knows how many pairs of socks I have better than me, right? And and I think that's a fair inference. I think you know better how many pairs of socks I have than I do. <laughs> and the other thing is, you know better than me why none of them match. <laughs> That's the perennial question, I agree. When we come back from our break, I talk with Steve Sloman and Phil Fernbach about how depending on others for what we think and believe is fueling society's increasing partisanship. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other and all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you. Either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone, or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm, I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash clearandvivid, and thank you. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my talk with Steve Sloman and Phil Fernbach. With regard to what we've been talking about, we're in a, a real pickle now. We're facing this ravine with about half of the population on one side and half on the other. And we don't know how to cross the, the divide. We haven't even got a plank and a piece of rope. How do we escape that rift? Doesn't it get worse, for instance, every time you hear from some other, someone else what you know is a lie? What you know, you believe you know it's a lie, and they believe that you're talking nonsense. Well, in some sense, this is the underlying theme of the book, right? And and. The one thing we haven't made clear so far to your listeners is that the basic method we use to reveal to people that they don't understand things um, as well as they think they do is by asking them to explain, 
right? So if you ask someone to explain how a toilet works or how a ballpoint pen works or how a political policy works, right? Like try to explain how Obamacare works. It's, it's, a, it's a huge document and, and very few people, if anybody, fully understands it. So as soon as you try to explain, you discover how complex it is and how little you actually know. And I think what's actually happening when you try to explain is you're thinking about the issue in causal terms, in terms of causes and consequences, right? And, and so if people have a conversation about causes and consequences of, say, gun policy, then there's actually going to be a lot of common ground. And a lot of that common ground is actually ignorance, right? That we don't know what the consequences of various policies are. So it seems to me the trick, and, and I'm, I'm not pretending that I have a way to implement this trick, but if we could, it would solve the problem. The trick is to get people to stop talking about their basic underlying values. I sometimes call them sacred values. And instead, talk about you know, simple mechanical things like, how is this going to work? How are we going to achieve the goals that we share? Let me, let me put another spin on what Steve just said as well, which is that I like to make a distinction between an advocacy mindset and explanatory mindset. Um, typically, when we're engaged in a dialogue with somebody who doesn't agree with us, we're in an advocacy mindset. So we're trying to convince them that we're right and they're wrong and that they should change sides. Um, but what we've been talking about this whole time is that uh, these issues are really complex and we ourselves typically don't understand them very deeply. And so um, one thing that can be very effective, I think, in opening people up and making them more open-minded and uh, creating uh, a dialogue that's more productive is to engage in an explanatory mindset. If you're, instead of saying, um, here's what you should believe and why you should believe it, you instead say, okay, let's jointly analyze this issue and think about it um, and try to explain what we're going to often have happen is that we're both going to realize that we don't uh, understand the issue as well as we thought we did. And we might actually find common ground. Um, I actually just saw a paper uh, that uh, had um, groups engaged in this kind of explanatory dialogue. Um, and it was, they did it both prior to the 2012 and 2016 elections. And the, the effect was, was, was pretty impressive. Um, uh, using a, a variety of different measures uh, to try to understand kind of the open-mindedness of the dialogue and the positivity of the dialogue, um, they got these great benefits of using an explanatory versus uh, an advocacy mindset. So I've, I've come around to thinking that this might be an important idea. Yeah. And just quickly to add to what Phil just said, you know, the benefits of explanation are not just discovering how little you understand, but you actually learn something by attempting to explain mm -hmm. as well. In that attempt to, through explanation, get the two sides to reflect in a less advocacy-oriented way, was there a problem on getting them to agree to the same set of facts as facts? Well, facts are slippery things, right? <laughs> yeah. And so um, I think um, it's we often oversimplify when we say that there's some set of facts that are relevant to an issue. Because, um, you know, as scientists, we know that any fact is actually contingent on a huge number of assumptions and settings in the environment that's going to determine what those facts are. 
So I actually think that like agreeing on a set of facts is sort of five steps down the line mm. of what is going to be beneficial for two sort of novices arguing about an issue. Um, yeah, most people don't know very many facts. They don't know any facts. And yeah. so, so if somebody claims something, usually, not always, but usually you're not really in a position to, you know, take issue with their claim because, you know, who knows? I think there's actually a much bigger issue that's more sort of upstream, which is just getting them to engage in this kind of conversation mm. at all. It's not something people like to do. People like to talk about their values. And it, as soon as you a ask them to frame things in terms of understanding, they kind of hesitate and get bored and know they're going to look stupid and don't really want to engage. And I see that as the bigger problem. There's a related issue here, which is this idea called false polarization, which is a little bit of a misnomer um, because real polarization exists uh, across the aisle. However... When you ask people how extreme are people on the other side about their issues, uh, about their beliefs or positions, um, people think that the polarization is much worse than it actually is. That's called false polarization. And so um, you get this both with issue polarization, so what do people believe about the, the relevant policies, but also something called affective polarization, which is like, you know, uh, the, the affect polarization says that people on the other side of the aisle are bad, they're evil, they have bad intentions and all this kind of stuff. So um, we often uh, have an overly extreme view of who those other folks are that don't agree with us. Um, and so I think a good starting point is to get people to appreciate that things are not as extreme as, the, as we think they are. And that can help us to maybe bridge that gap in terms of just starting the conversation like Steve was talking about. I've seen so many times that people of goodwill who could be laughing and joking together before the political issue comes up that separates them suddenly are reminded that this person they were just laughing with is one of the worst people on earth. <laughs> right. Believing this, they come armed with the idea that they have to fix this person's thinking. Right. On both sides. I think we go to one of two places. One is this other person is stupid. Yeah. And the other one is this other person has evil intentions. And I think usually none of, both of those are incorrect. Right. Um, I mean, the stupidity thing, yes, we're all ignorant about all of these issues. And there are some of us who are willing to do bad things or tolerate bad things. But by and large, friends and neighbors are not like that, usually. You know, I, I don't know how much of it is attributing intentions to the other people or making judgments about their character. I think a lot of it is that when you hear someone say things that you disagree with vehemently, you feel attacked. But you don't feel attacked just as an individual. You feel it, you feel that your group is being attacked. You feel your family's being attacked. And so you feel responsible for defending, you know, your community, your community's values. Well, you're making me think of how things can spread in a more productive way. How something closer to the truth can spread. And I think of a circle of communicating people. If one node in that circle can connect with another circle and introduce 
in humane terms, other ideas that some of which, some of which were, might run counter to the thinking of the first circle, but be enriched by the other circle. Maybe there's a chance. So Julia Minson's a social psychologist um, at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and she's been doing a lot of work on how receptive people are to others' um, ideas and thoughts and claims. And apparently there's a sort of consistent individual difference in, in receptivity. But it's also something that you can um, increase during a dialogue. And if you're talking to someone and you sense that they're receptive, then you become receptive yourself. Mm. And, and that's a way, I think, to achieve exactly what you're suggesting, right? Because really, if you can increase people's receptiveness to other people, then you're going to be trading ideas across these circles. Yeah, I, I had dinner once with a reporter who used that technique to get personal details out of people she was interviewing. (laughs) Early in the conversation, she told me she would reveal something very personal and a little embarrassing about herself and wait for the the famous person she was interviewing (laughs) to feel obligated to follow suit. The only thing was about 10 minutes after she told me that, she, she did it to me. (laughs) <laughs> oh, no. Did you fall did, for it? No, I had just heard her technique exposed. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> That's brilliant. I'll, I'll pass that on to Julia. Yeah. Well, I would love to keep talking, but our time is running out. However, we always end our show with seven quick questions, which are so tuned into what our conversation has been that the listener is liable to say, weren't you listening? They already gave you the answer to that. But let's see. The first one is not necessarily so. What do you wish you really understood? Phil, you want to go first? Um, About anything. How to make my partner happy. (laughs) (laughs) How about you, Steve? Um, I, I really wish I understood what motivated people. I mean, that's what I've been trying to understand my whole career. Okay, second question. This I, We've covered it, but it's interesting to hear you talk about it in a nutshell. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? The Socratic method. Ask them to try to explain. Uh, and it will be self-evident. And Steve? Yeah, I, I just say let them talk long enough. And uh, and point out their own contradictions, which I guess really is the Socratic method. Okay, what's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you, Phil? Ooh, um, <laughs> I'll tell you what the strangest question is. The question is, what's the strangest question anybody's <laughs> ever asked you? <laughs> so you're both so open-minded, you don't consider anything strange. We, we can move on from there. How do you stop a compulsive talker? You leave the room. Can't you? Can you? Have you ever actually done that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you stop listening. That's I, it, it's, it, it's rude, but at some, but I think being a compulsive talker is rude, and so it kind of licenses a rude response. How about you, Phil? Um, I guess I would just descend internally and just entertain myself and zone out. <laughs> Because I, I don't like to stop people from behaving the way that they like to behave. I'd rather just uh, handle it internally. Okay, let's say you're sitting next to someone at a dinner table 
who you've never met. How do you start up a genuine conversation? Phil, you want to go first? Um, I usually start talking about music because that's all I ever want to talk about. <laughs> so I'm the, probably the compulsive talker. <laughs> that's the first yes, time I ever got true. that answer. Steve, how about you? <laughs> oh, you just ask them a question about themselves. That, that gets people going. And usually the whole conversation remains about them. Okay, what gives you confidence? And I suppose the more confident one should answer first. Oh, uh, now we're stuck. <laughs> <laughs> and neither of us is willing to answer. Um, it, well, any... I think um, the, the better question is what causes you to have less confidence? Because as human beings, we tend to be chronically overconfident. And I've definitely had that throughout my life. And so um, I've been working over these last many years, collaborating with Steve and studying all this stuff to actually try to figure out how to moderate my confidence a lot of the time. Oh, that's really interesting. How about you, Steve? Yeah. Well, success is what breeds confidence. And often in my line of work, success means eliciting the right reaction from people. You know, when they laugh at the right time or show interest at the right time, that's success. And I get confident and I'll keep on going. Okay. Last question. What book changed your life? Ooh. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Oh, I remember that book well. Yeah. <laughs> Phil? I think uh, maybe Gertel Escher Bach, because that was the book that I read before going to grad school in cognitive science that really got me kind of jazzed about uh, wanting to pursue um, studying how people think. Actually, that's the book that made me a cognitive scientist, too. I don't know if we've ever discussed that, Phil, but that was a very important book in my life. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad I brought you both together. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good plug for that book. Two for two. Yeah. Well, thank you for a really interesting, in-depth conversation. I really enjoyed it, and I appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks so much for some really um, rich and insightful questions. It's been such a pleasure to meet you, Alan. We really enjoyed this. Thanks. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. Steve Sloman is professor of cognitive, linguistic, and psychological sciences at Brown University. Phil Fernbach is professor of marketing at the University of Colorado at Boulder. The book they co-authored is The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with the distinguished philosopher Daniel Dennett. 
He recently signed this simple but stark statement. Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal-scale risks, such as pandemics and nuclear war. He signed that statement along with hundreds of others in academia, politics, industry, the media, and even including leading AI researchers. Here's how our conversation began when I asked him if, in his mind, humanity is in fact facing extinction from AI. I think something like that is not just possible, but possible in the near future unless we act very fast. And the, the way it's going to happen is not because AI is going to be super intelligent, enslave us or anything like that. It's that the existing, really quite stupid, uncomprehending systems are still very good at fooling people. Daniel Dennett and the dangers posed by counterfeit people. Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. Or a splash of Amazon Jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with durable colors that last all season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done.